Hey, it's Phil Simon. My new book is out now. It is called The Nine, The Tectonic Forces Reshaping the Workplace. It's my best work to date, and I hope that you'll check it out. Thanks. First they hate each other. Now all of a sudden they love each other. Oh, it doesn't make any sense to me. Of course not. You're a robot. Conversations about collaboration, episode 73. John Darbyshire joins me today. He's the CEO and co-founder of Smart Suite. We talk about efficiency, automation, how we started his company, and whether or not we'll all ultimately wind up using a single app. Let's light this candle. John, where does this pod find you? I'm in uh, Southern California, uh, Newport Beach area. Nice. I was there back in June, and I got to meet uh, Brian Cranston and Aaron Paul from uh, Breaking Bad, which oh. I mentioned just about every chance I get. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think you... You're from Arizona, so obviously you've probably been to New Mexico where they filmed as well. I grew up in Jersey, but with friends from Carnegie Mellon, every year we took a trip to a different city. And one year I lobbied for ABQ, and we actually went to the same, I'm pretty sure it was the same go-kart place that they have in season four. Yeah. um, Which was lost on pretty much everyone, but of course I was geeking out on it. (laughs) Yeah, I did a trip with my my adult son, who's now 30, a couple years ago, and we were going through that area. So we we spent the day going through like the nine different places that they filmed from the houses and the car wash. And it's pretty interesting just to see it live. Well, as much as I would love to talk to you about that, and we could fill up (laughs) an entire episode, uh, I want to talk a little bit about... No code, low code, and particularly your company. Uh, for those people who may not be familiar with it, in a nutshell, what are we trying to achieve with Smart Suite? Yeah, Smart Suite is a low code, uh, or excuse me, a no code platform that allows businesses to manage any business process or project on a single platform. So the idea here is to help organizations get away from having four, five, six different platforms that they need to use to manage work. And to provide them a single platform that provides 90 to 95% of what they need all in one place. So typically projects or no code platforms are thought about from a process perspective or a database perspective or from a project management perspective. And then you, you kind of have the websites and the other portions there as well. Our goal was to bring together the project and the database, the process side together into a unified platform. So you'll see features from us from some of the bigger players like an Airtable on the database side, but you'll also see features from like ClickUp, Monday, Asana on the project management side uh, combined. You're mixing and matching. And I think that's hard for some people to get their heads around because for so long, it's been, well, no, we use a spreadsheet for this and we use Word for this and PowerPoint for that. And you would never, I mean, I guess you could, I mean, you could set up a table in Microsoft Word, but you, you, you know, that was limited the same way. All right, fine. You can track data in Excel, but if you really wanted to do some heavy lifting, you need access. And then beyond that, you use something like SQL server. Um, right. It, you're finding that people are coming to the realization that you actually can have this suite of tools, not necessarily for everything to your point, 90%. I don't know if we ever get to a hundred, but I think it's tough for some people to get their head around. When I started messing around with notion, I said, well, what the hell is this? Right. Is right. It a productivity tool. Well, kind of. Is it a project management tool? It could be that. Can you do You can use it as a wiki. Sure. All right. Well, it's like a Swiss army knife. Um, but I, it does seem like, and I'm totally biased here because the new book is on this, but it does seem like this is the future of development. 
It, it is. I, I think no code in general has taken a huge leap forward in the, just the last couple of years. Uh, the technology is now available to support a lot of the interesting things that we want to be able to do in platforms. Uh, when, so as we built our technology on top of, you know, we built our platform on top of these new technologies. Um, and then people are more open to integration. So you're seeing companies like Zapier and Make that allow you to use them to integrate with three, four, five thousand of the products that have linked in, you know, made their products available there. So it's a much more open environment. And that's happened in the last three to four years. Ten years ago, this was not the case. It was very closed loop. Companies didn't like their product being integrated with other products. That whole mindset has begun to change. And the, the value of no code is that it puts the hands of the process or the work that needs to be done in the hands of the people that do the work, right? It allows them to determine what the process is, how the forms look, how the pages look, the reports they want to set up. And they don't have to go to IT or to a development shop to do that. It allows them to do it right now. And in some cases, you can build things in 30 minutes to an hour that years ago would would take forty fifty thousand dollar effort with the development team. I mean, it's crazy the the leap forward that's happened just in the last few years. It's fascinating to me because it used to be back in the day that Microsoft integrated really well with Microsoft, or more recently Google um, Drive or Workspace, whatever they're calling it these days. I keep losing track. Right. Um, but I, I mean, I would agree with you. And the native integrations to me are fascinating. But then you throw in the third party tools like a Zapier or Workata or Workato, I don't know how to pronounce that one or make. And it really is to me a matter of being able to do so much. And if there is some weird instance in which you'd have to actually build something, then yeah, go nuts with the API. But it does seem like you can cover 90 to 95% of what you need. And if that other 5% is worth spending the time and money for, hey, go with God. But I mean, you're talking about not just bridging the IT business divide, but basically obliterating it. It is. And I think the value to the customer, there's a lot of value from an efficiency standpoint, but there's also value from an economical standpoint in that now I'm paying for one tool for my people on a per user cost and maybe not five or six right from the license fees. When I onboard people, I have to onboard them into one place. And, and most people don't have just a single tool right now. It's one or two tools compared to five or six that we had years ago. Like it's it's shrinking down as we go. But you only have to onboard your people if you use SmartSuite onto a single platform. Uh, just makes it easier to get people onboarded. They know now how to do CRM or marketing or HR, what all in the same place uh, that's there. Uh, but when you offboard is when it's even more important. If you're using five or six different systems and a key employee leaves, you've got data on all these different places and you're trying to figure out how do I get to what they worked on? Where is it at? It's pretty stressful. In a no-code platform like SmartSuite, like it's, it's all there. It's all access controlled. That employee leaves, it's not a big deal. If a new employee takes over, you can just assign that work to them and they have access to all that same information again. And that's not just smart suite. That's kind of no code in general that, that we're talking about here. But a lot of people forget about both the financial and the efficiency aspects of, of no code. I'm completely with you. And I think about the insanity of continuing to run key processes via email because if that person's inbox goes away, the person leaves the company or the person's on vacation. Absent getting IT involved, how would you get that information? And I know there are th things like shared inboxes or with Zendesk, it's got a unique email identifier. So you'll see if I open a ticket with Notion, it's, you know, hey, Jesse, taking over for Walt or Hank or right. something like that. But I, I, I do think it's this mindset shift that to me makes all the sense in the world. But 
I think it's tougher when folks say, well, this is the way I do it, or I like this no-code tool. I don't want to learn that no-code tool. And it doesn't have to be all or nothing. But in the new book, there's a chapter on different philosophies, one of which is that you will sanction a certain number of tools, and that might give people more agency because they feel like they're picking the one that works for them. But the flip side, though, is that what happens if marketing has to collaborate with sales? One person uses one tool, another person in another group uses another, You know who wins? There's no adjudicator. Right. We, right. we shall use this one for this project. Yeah. I, I think like if you take smart suite as an example and, you know, you have a CRM with the sales team and your marketing team is using one of our processes for that. And you have your HR team, maybe your support team, they're all in the same place. And as they need to share information, like accounts and contacts that go across all those things I just mentioned, you just link to those, you link to the contacts that are in the CRM and everybody has access to them, but you can also access control that all the way down to the record level. So maybe this person has access to everything except these records that are here. And you could take it another step further in that maybe you're looking at HR data and the HR team could see, you know, everybody can see all the information, but the HR team can see compensation as well, right? That field just goes away. So everybody may still have access to view their records and things or people on their team, but, you know, certain fields of information uh, will be hidden from them just based on the access that's been set up. And that's when the efficiency really takes place. If you don't do that and you have separate systems like a Salesforce and a HubSpot and a Zendesk, you'll use Zapier or Make or some product to create those integrations. But now you have to take the time to build them, maintain them. They don't work 100% all the time. There's always there's always something you have to go you know keep an eye on in regards to that. You can do it, but it's just not as efficient. Right. And plus, you could be in what I'll call vendor purgatory. Because I, we've all seen this happen. Well, no, this isn't a Microsoft issue, right? This is a Dell. This is a Dell issue, and you're going well. All right, and, and I'd argue that one of the benefits I'm, a, I'm an Apple guy is if I have an issue, right? I just go to the Apple store. And I think Microsoft saw the light with Surface five or six years ago, basically saying, "Okay, Steve Jobs was right. We want to own the hardware and the software." There still can be OEMs out there, but uh, I like this notion of field level security. Going back to my ERP consulting days. I remember when people would bring up, I used to work on the HR side of the house and say, the system's wrong, right? This person has no payment information. What is it working for free? No, you just can't see that because you don't have the rights to it. Trust me, it's there. I can prove right. it. That, that does seem like, at least currently, a point of differentiation for you guys, right? It, it is, yeah. The, the record level and the field level permissions are something that uh, not a lot of products in our category have right now. And that's because of my personal experience on the enterprise side of no code for so long, you know, going back 25 years ago and working with, you know, mainly fortune 1000 customers, uh, that was a necessity. So what I've tried to do is bring those enterprise features that I know enterprise customers love, but bring those together for just the everyday regular user as well. So we support from, you know, one user to 10,000 users on our platform from startups to fortune 1000, but they all have the same set of features that you want. So we don't try to turn things on and off for you, you know, all the way through. We just base it, uh, we start at $10 per user and it's based on usage. And we just have a couple of exceptions. So that rule for every feature, you know, the hundreds, thousands of features we have in the platform are then available to everybody. Yeah, I'd be curious to know without violating any confidences, if it is kind of a power law. I know Microsoft did some research 20 or 25 years ago about how something like 80% of the users took advantage of 20% of the functionality. Uh, do you find just at a general level, I'm not asking for anything specific, but do you find that there's a, um, a more even distribution of the features or do people always flock to 
I remember with reporting tools, can I export it to a CSV and get an Excel? Well, yes, but that shouldn't be, <laughs> that shouldn't be your only question because this actually has other features that obviate the need for having to import it to Excel and then do all your filters and all that good stuff. Yeah, I, I, I'll tell you what I found personally um, in the last three to four years with SmartSuite is that our most experienced or our highest level users um, are Gen Zers, typically mm-hmm. in their early 20s, just the power users that just understand it moving into the millennials, but outside of the millennials, we still have great users, but that class of user, they grew up with technology. They understand things in a different way. It becomes natural. And they tend to be the 80% that's using the 20%. Like they use the full scope of what's available to accomplish things. And I, I love, I, I spend about four hours every day just working with customers and understanding how they're using it. And I like to focus on that particular group because they just, they have really cool use cases that I haven't thought about, and they they use our features in ways that a lot of people don't think about as well. So I cover this in the new book. Um, that coming across as ageist because you can be a fifty year old citizen developer raising my hand. Right. Um, but all things being equal, and I'll go into some detail there, but not here. Um, it does seem like the older you get, the less likely you are to go. There's got to be a better way to do this. Maybe you're managing folks. Maybe you're not as familiar with the tech. Maybe you've got a wife and two kids and no time to play around with different tools and features. Ain't broke, don't fix it, all that. Uh, Do you have any theories about why? Is it just the familiarity or is it something else like, well, we have to make sure we can be employable to pay off this college debt. So we need to constantly push the envelope. Yeah, no, that's a great question. I I, I do feel that you know, as you get older in your career and you've done things a certain way or been taught to do things a certain way, you tend to focus on that first. And there's still creativity that happens, but you like you have a mindset of how to do things. I think that the, you know, the Gen Zers have the combination of they've grown up with technology, they've used social media for so so long, things just connect with them. So when they when they go into no code platforms, there's not a lot of them searching help like a lot of us, you know, would do. They just start using and things make sense to them. Um, and they don't have these preconceived notions of how to integrate A with B, right? They're taking advantage of Zapier and Make, but internal automations that we have and formulas, and they're combining things in ways that even I, as a designer of the software, hadn't thought that people could take advantage of. And that, that to me, is what's so fascinating, is just to watch that happen in that group of people that I don't typically see, you know, in the, the people that are, you know, your age, my age, starting at 50 and kind of above. And the way you started Smart Suite is kind of anathema to what we teach startup these days, right? MVP, launch early, learn from your customers, gather data. Um, just explain a little bit about what you did because it was in a way old school, but I, I think it it shows a certain confidence that you knew exactly what you wanted to do. Yeah, I, I think that. Let me tell you a little bit about my story that helps you understand the, the MVP. MVP side. So uh, I had the chance to start a company, uh, Archer Technologies, back in 2000, 2001. It was a no-code platform that specialized in what became the governance, risk, and compliance space, right? Um, Our first 30 customers were 29 of the top 30 largest banks in the world. We went on to do healthcare, telco, on and on. But it was mainly Fortune 1000 customers. So I spent 10 or 11 years working with that group of customers around business process automation in these large companies using our no-code platform. Uh, I sold that to EMC um, and then had the chance to spend, kind of retired and invested over the next period of years in about 400 startup companies and had the chance to work with lots of startup founders on really cool ideas. And we spent a lot of time focused on 
the processes inside of the company that they needed to put in place to hire people and get work done, sometimes as much of that as we did on the idea that they were focused on. Right. So the idea around Smart Suite was was to get back into the no code and say, I want to solve that problem. I want to build this ultimate third generation no code platform. And as I looked at building it, what was interesting was it, it, I couldn't build an MVP. Typically, you know, six to eight months, build your MVP, iterate after that over a period of time because it didn't solve the problem that I knew needed to be solved. And I was afraid that if we released that MVP, people would think, oh, that's just another product that doesn't solve the problem. Like we get stuck down at the bottom of the stack that was there. So we did something interesting. We spent uh, almost three years, uh, a little over two and a half years with about a hundred developers to build our core technology. Uh, We never told, I didn't even update LinkedIn. None of the people that worked with us updated their LinkedIn. We were completely quiet until the day we decided to launch, which was earlier this year. And uh, 2022. And um, we gained uh, maybe three or 400 customers in the first month that was there. And that kind of became our MVP. Like we didn't, we do no marketing other than word of mouth, our partner programs, what people have to say about us. So, and we even limited our LinkedIn posts right mm-hmm. after that kind of MVP because we wanted to work with that first series of customers as long as we could. And then just two and a half months ago, we turned back on kind of just announcing basically through LinkedIn and some of our social media platforms that, Hey, here's what we do, how we do it. And we've garnered, you know, a little over a thousand customers just in the last month, just from that. And that, that kind of proves our point on the MVP that we solved the problem that the people were looking for because we took the time to to build it. And I know that's unique. It costs me about $15 million of my own money to actually build that MVP. So we're, we're self-funded as well. Most entrepreneurs or startups, don't have that luxury, right? It's that's why you go the MVP route is to attract venture capital, bring in customers. I, I took just a different route because of my background and because I had the means to support, you know, the early development. I just read an article in the journal about how more founders are eschewing the traditional VC model because it's about growing fast and the hundred X or whatever exit. And some say, no, we, we don't want to do that. We want to grow but at a reasonable pace. And I guess it was on Hacker News or something, some thread that wound up going viral and people basically say, yeah, how do we do that? Or even some examples of founders, Notion might be in there, uh, that took money, but paid it back. I guess they instructed it as a loan or something and said, look, you know, we, we're going to build at our speed. Thank you. But our interests aren't necessarily aligned. Absolutely. I, I think when when we started Archer Technologies you know, 20 years ago, we were profitable in the first year and profitable every other year after that until we sold the company. We never took venture capital until year nine, which was ended up being about seven or eight months before we sold the company. And we didn't take capital at that point because the company needed capital. We took capital because I wanted to take a little money off the table because I had my entire net worth in the company and I was making decisions about how to run the company, worried about if it didn't work, what it would do to me, my family personally. And what happened at that point for us was when I did take the money, it freed me up to make some big decisions that I needed to make in the company because I had the backing now on the venture side and it wasn't just me personally. And the growth of that company just went crazy in, in eight or nine months. And that's why we ended up selling. So I, I'm a proponent of bringing in capital, but bringing it in at the right time and focusing on profitability. Like I, there are companies in the no-code space that their valuations are just unbelievable when you look at the revenue that they've generated and the loss that they they they're nowhere close to being profitable, right? And the venture guys are rewarding them for that. But I, I'm 
kind of with the notion. I didn't understand that about notion. I have more respect for them even now, but um, I, I love the folks that are focused on customers and profitability to build a company, not just the, the growth at any means. It makes me think that if we head into a recession and some of these companies are facing down rounds, if they'll try to cash out and the larger vendors will try to gobble up. I know there was it AppGyver and AppSheet. Um, I don't yeah. think they ever disclosed what Google and SAP paid for them, but let's just say it wasn't a ham sandwich. Um, right. Could there be companies that go look at used to be worth 10. Now it's worth a billion. You know, does the customer base and the core technology warrant writing a, a significant check? So I, I, I don't see how all of these no code, low code vendors will survive. Right. It's like anything else. I think it was uh, the New York Times history of business book I read 20th century, uh, maybe 20 years ago or so. And I think initially there were something like a thousand car companies. And then eventually it was the big six or the big four or whatever like that. I mean, do you see a lot of consolidation in, taking place? Absolutely. I, I My personal belief is that you're going to see the next trillion dollar company or the next couple of trillion dollar companies come out of this no code space. Long really? Long. Wow, yeah, it, it's it's that big of a movement that is happening, and you're seeing not just Smart Suite, but other people in the space gather gobble up hundreds of thousands of customers. Right, just that it that just wasn't fathomable in, in in this you know ten years ago that that could even happen. You could grow that fast. Uh, that's there. So as an investor, I've been I've invested in no code platforms, and I've been hearing that from the venture community for a few years, but I. Firmly believe it now, seeing it happen uh, real time. Just like we keep talking, just in the last couple of years, this momentum towards no code, and just you do a search on LinkedIn for no code and watch the tens of thousands of people that pop up that are just no code consultants. (laughs) Yeah, it's remarkable. Um, I did a search before I got serious about the writing process earlier this year. And at the time, just with the word citizen developer in quotes, there were I think 18 books. And I said to myself, you know what? In a year, they're going to be a hundred, maybe 200 or 300. So get off your tuchus and, and get to right. work because uh, there's no guarantee. I mean, but generally speaking, I'm a big believer when it comes to books and first mover advantage. Doesn't mean that it'll necessarily blow up. But if it were a social media book in 2015, good luck with that. If it were a big data book in 2018, again, there are thousands right. out there. So I don't know. It's, it's, it's a really exciting time to me. And if I could go back professionally, I probably would have studied computer science because I definitely have that kind of mindset. <laughs> but when I think about the ability using a mouse to create something that saves me hours of time, and yeah, at first Zapier or a tool like that can be a little bit overwhelming. But I think one of the other benefits of no code, low code is that, particularly on the low code side, you can actually get a sense of the more um, some of the programming concepts. So if you think about it, Zapier is basically if this and that, and any programming language has uh, that statement or an ELIF statement. And, oh, all right, now I, I kind of get it. Or even when I wrote Access databases back in the day, and I looked at, when I did a query at the SQL view, I go, wait, I just did that. And it made me want to know more. So I feel like it almost feeds upon itself. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think you're also seeing that, you know, you know, five or six years ago, we we talked a lot about low-code platforms because we couldn't solve all the problems with no-code, right? So you had to have low-code to do that. What's happening now is low-code is getting so good that it's infringing on the, the low-code side, right? Like it's uh, things I would have to write code for last year 
are just available for me using drag and drop today. So I think you're going to see this 80% no code, 20% low code you know, inside of platforms. And how you do that, we SmartSuite is considered a no code platform is we give you tools to use our API to kind of do things outside of that if you need to, that's all there. And we give you lots of different ways to do it. So we, we kind of put the control back in your hand as opposed to being, you know, 50 or 60% low code in the past and 40% no code. No, I can't wait to see how this uh, shakes out. I'll get you out of here, John, on this. What book are you currently reading? You know, I just reread Outliers uh, with Malcolm Gladwell. I don't know if you've read that book. Yep. I, I gave, gave the a talk players about and the lawyer and yeah. Yeah. And he talks, you know, for, for me, I, I do a lot of speeches and I like to bring up parts of that book with Bill Gates and Steve Jobs and the guys from HP on kind of their background and, and just interesting points about how that happens. And then, you know, all those guys that I just mentioned were born in 1955, the same year and had the same types of opportunities in that very limited geographic area. Uh, and that's how this, this whole computer thing that we know of today, this tech world started was with that small group of people in that area. Good stuff, John. I really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for your time. All right. I appreciate it. It was a pleasure. Thank you. Remember that these episodes drop every Tuesday. However, if you'd like early access to them, you're in luck. I've launched a Patreon page for this podcast at, wait for it, patreon.com forward slash Phil Simon. I've set up a number of different tiers, including early access and podcast sponsorships. Thanks for listening to Conversations About Collaboration. If you like what you heard, then how can you not? Please download, like, and or subscribe. See you next time.